Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and every day this week, Mercola Healthy Pets is excited to bring you a special interview with a variety of animal professionals and pet lovers that will help bring awareness to the Companion Animal Nutrition and Wellness Institute's latest project. It's called the SPAN Partnership, or the Student Partnership in Animal Nutrition Program. This innovative program provides veterinary students and vet tech students with educational opportunities to learn about companion animal nutrition from unbiased board-certified veterinary nutritionists. Enjoy the interview and consider supporting Can We Span program this week. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you get interested in nutrition? Tell us about you. So I went to Virginia Tech. I actually got two bachelor degrees there, one in animal science, the other biology with uh, minor in chemistry. From there, my advisor was actually teaching an animal nutrition course. He introduced me to Dave Harmon at University of Kentucky. And Dave was doing research for Hills Pet Nutrition at the time. And so I did my master's and PhD there. Obviously, was still considering vet school, but once I got into the R&D side of things, you know, I really found my calling. So after I graduated, at least at the time, I thought it made sense. I went to Hills Pet Nutrition for about eight years. I also went and got my board certification with the American College of Animal Sciences, and I earned my fellow with the American College of Nutrition, which is actually human nutrition. And then in about 2013-ish, Blue Buffalo called, called me and wanted me to come up and talk to them. And I actually took a job there. I was senior vice president, regulatory affairs, quality assurance, and R&D. After Blue, I started consulting for companies that pretty much weren't doing kibble because, you know, th there's a place for brown and round, but there's opportunity to make something better. And that's where my co-founder and I started Guardian Pet Food. How did you arrive to where you're at with the types of foods you're interested in producing now versus five or 10 years ago? Yeah, so it's a good question. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of companies and they're good companies. They won't dabble in the new and novel because they don't know if it's going to succeed or not. So when I got out of doing kibble, I, I just vowed I would never do kibble again. And the reason being is, is to your point, it just wasn't challenging. We were looking for new opportunities to improve on nutrition. What I did was, is I summarized every digestibility study that was done at the time between Illinois, Kentucky, and a couple other universities. And what you end up seeing is on average, for argument's sake, dry matter digestibility is most kibble hangs around 80, maybe 85% digestible. Well, if you think about a 25-pound dog in a year, you're literally throwing out like a 50-pound bag of food into the, into the backyard. And so, you know, when I went down the path with Jim Golofsky, my co-founder, we did one of those, uh, hey, what if we could make something that could do this? And so we went and made something that was freeze-dried because uh, we wanted to something that was convenient for, for the pet owner like Kibble but also it delivered on all the benefits of raw food, right? And so our stuff isn't going to be cooked. Uh, it simply goes through freeze drying. The manufacturer we work with actually has a proprietary kill step that isn't HPP, and it's very novel, which, you know, to me was super cool. Certainly when we did digestibility testing, our dry matter digestibility was 91% uh, 
protein was like 93 and obviously fat was high because fat typically is high unless you've got something goofy going on. Uh, I want to say it's like 96, 97%. And our stool volume was obviously reduced dramatically. You nailed down the two biggest concerns for veterinarians when it comes to some of these innovative alternative non-kibble diets, the pathogen control, and obviously you're a formulator and a nutritionist, so that part's taken care of. How do you address your professional peers telling you there's no research behind feeding these alternative diets as being any better than kibble? How do you address that question? My pushback to them, and it would be to Hills and other people, uh, put your digestibility data out there for everybody else to see. Put your analytical data for everybody else to see. Once we uh, get our website overhauled, uh, you're going to see hey, here's all my nutrients from an AFCO standpoint and a few others on a 100% dry matter basis. And more importantly, you're going to see it from a 100 kcal or a 1,000 kcal basis because that's where the veterinarians really care about for all the uh, initial runs that we've done to date. We send it out for the complete AFCO profile. And so where most people would release just based off of the guaranteed analyses. And so we're making sure we're doing everything right and it's done right. As cheesy as it sounds, Jim and I both have that concept of uh, pets before profits, because if you're not thinking about the pets and you're not giving them the right nutrition, well, then you shouldn't be making money. I mean, you should go find something else to do. And it's the old concept of, hey, I don't want my animal to survive. I want them to thrive. Why do you think that pet parents are demanding transparency, demanding better quality. They want to see exactly where their food comes from. There's a, there's a reason for that. And why do you think that this is such a fast-growing segment of the pet food industry, and yet so few people doing it? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of it comes back to, you know, the unfortunate thing of the melamine recall. And I'm sure we've all lived through that and had different pain points on there. When you started seeing Imes and Yukonuba and other people, grocery brands that were getting recalled coming out of the same plant, I think that was an eye-opener to a lot of consumers back then. And whenever you have some sort of recall that goes on and then all of a sudden you find out that, hey, you know what, my super premium food that I'm paying 100 bucks a bag for you know 20 pounds is being made at the same place that I could be buying another food for $10 for 50 pounds. You know, it has a lot of people questioning what are they truly getting for their money. And the reality of it is, is, you know, when it comes to food safety, and when I say that, like salmonella, listeria, you know, if it's being extruded, they're all created the same. They're not going to treat the dollar general food any different than what they're treating the, the most expensive kibble out there because they go through the same processes. And so I think from that standpoint, you know, that's where they want to know the transparency and stuff like that. And then obviously they realized it was Chinese ingredients and a lot of the you know, super premium companies were using the same ingredient as the Dollar General. That, that was another sore subject too. Unfortunately, some companies today act like their food is better because they don't have ingredients coming from China. But you know, your ingredient sources really don't matter unless if you have a good quality control system in place. Our concern, one of the concerns for Can We is, you know, veterinary education. How well do you think veterinarians are being educated about pet foods and the pet 
food industry and you know how do you see it right now where it stands when it comes to schooling obviously you, you you get your you know course you're probably early in your career and that may be your only touch point you have in nutrition unless you decide hey you know what nutrition's for me and you know I want to go get my master's phd or board certification but if you're going into a traditional uh, veterinary clinic that might be your only touch point that that you get on that minus uh you know whatever rep sales rep comes into your uh, clinic from time to time. But the reality of it is, is as a company, you need to be educating both the consumer and consumer being the veterinarian as well. And so having that data accessible, so it's not a pain point that, hey, I don't want them to call me and go, what's your sodium level per kcal in my food or iodine or copper or anything like that? So they can decide, hey, it's still okay to feed it. That stuff should be out there and transparent and in the forefront. And so, you know, there's lots of opportunities for education. And I also believe that there's lots of opportunities for education on new foods, new food trends, what the consumers are looking for, and things of that nature. And so, for example, one example I always give, and, and it was always a pet peeve for Dr. Freeman up at Tufts, is, you know, well, why do certain companies say that your food's gluten-free? And when you remind them that it might not have anything to do with the dog, it could have everything to do with little Jimmy who interacts with the dog, but now he's allergic to his saliva because he's eaten whatever else. It's actually a lifestyle for the consumer. So some of those claims are really irrelevant are relevant to the dog, but it has a lot of things to do with that consumer and what's going on in their household. And they also need to recognize and understand when, you know, sometimes people in their own industry will misspeak or present data that is not backed by anything. I'll use the, the article that was published in the AVMA at the end of last year where Dr. Freeman mentioned that beg diets are causing DCM. Well, now all of a sudden, A, FDA hasn't showed the linkage of that or a particular brand, but you have veterinarians that did read that commentary article, which didn't have to go through peer review uh, publication process. Now you have veterinarians thinking that all grain-free is bad. Well, it's not. Uh, there's no data to support it, but you have people, and I deal with it all the time from friends, is, hey, I went to the vet. They asked me if I was on grain-free. I need to get off and I should feed this. And I was like, well, did your dog have any of these signs? And they say, no. And I said, well, challenge them like you would challenge your doctor. You have the right to ask, what is their rationale? What's the data behind it? And can you support it? And so I, I think, you know, there's two ways to properly educate that. That's one is from the company side, but also on a different organizations like AVMA. They should be making sure the proper information and articles they're putting out there are factual, data-based, and, and driven. I know I couldn't go into a vet clinic and say, hey, I got this cool new food without somebody going, well, do you have an abstract or a briefing or whatever that proves that your stuff works? I don't see why they wouldn't require or ask that, that on a flip side for, of a veterinarian coming in or them reading an article or, God forbid, you know, however the news decides to spin it. Well, certainly all of these topics are sparking tremendous amount of confusion within the pet parent category. Owners are wildly confused right now. And when they go to their veterinarian, 
their veterinarian appears to be equally confused and also not necessarily even have the background to be able to have an ongoing conversation. Veterinarians don't know what to do at this point. So I think it's fantastic, first of all, that Canwe is doing what they are doing in terms of being able to provide independent nutrition and research on different types of diets. But I also think it's really important that we have nutritionists like both of you asking questions. They're difficult questions, they could be uncomfortable questions, but you're doing a fantastic job of asking questions to your peers. Those questions aren't necessarily making you popular, but they are starting a conversation that pet parents are desperate to have because we don't have the answers we need. And we're really relying on you, the experts, to disclose what you know, what you're thinking, but then also carve a path forward in terms of what needs to happen, what research needs to be done. Yeah, it's really just shifting the company's ways of thinking. And when it comes to formula development, that fine, that's proprietary and that's unique to them. But when it comes to supplying proper information to people to make very good decisions that are based on facts and not puffery and imaging on packaging, you know, that's where they need to be. And the ones that are even saying, where's the science? Well, I don't see them publishing their data either. And so they need to change their mindset. And you know what, if, if you're going to call people out, you better be able to put your data out there for other people to review as well. And you know, Ryan, as we go forward with this fundraiser and our goal to provide unbiased education, you know, to, to be able to sort marketing from, you know, real nutrition education. And it's the kind of information that we would like to see veterinary students learn and understand, you know, to, to hear what you have, what you bring to the table. Um, what we're looking to do is bring in new information about what's out there, why, and I think you're kind of, I think you're part of the solution. You know we appreciate the fact that you're asking the entire industry difficult questions to answer, but you are going and finding those answers. And most importantly, you're publicly providing them transparently and honestly with what you're finding. And for that, we appreciate you leading the way to the next generation of super transparent pet food companies. It's what we all have desperately wanted and, and it's happening. So we appreciate you not just participating, but leading the way. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. You're well welcome. Thank you, Dr. Barges, for joining me. Tell me a little bit about what you do in terms, I know you're double board certified, so you do a lot at the teaching hospital, but tell me a little bit about your job specifically pertaining to the nutrition aspect of your job. Okay, so I... And I'm boarded in veterinary nutrition, and I run the clinical nutrition service here at the University of Georgia. It's a fairly small service, but very busy because of consultation and both internally and externally. I also do quite a bit of research in the area of nutrition as well as other areas. How many vet schools have full-time clinical nutritionists, would you guess? Not enough. Probably more than half have a nutritionist or some access to nutrition, but there are some of those, and I'd have to sit and think through it, that the nutritionists are not there full time, that they have positions either doing other things like myself, where I do internal medicine, interventional radiology, and nutrition, or 
they work for industry and they come in and, yeah. and work there part time. Yeah. And even that, I think, is quite helpful. I went to Iowa State and there was not a small animal nutritionist even coming in to teach classes. My entire education was done by a pet food representative for small animal nutrition. How, how common or uncommon is that? It's not as common as it used to be. Many times people from industry are invited in to do basic nutrition teaching but probably more commonly, they're invited in to do more of the elective advanced nutrition where they can come in and do part of the labs or come in and give topic presentations to, to students. The schools that have nutritionists on staff usually teach the nutrition course, but then people from industry come in and do you know, lunchtime seminars unrelated to being involved with nutrition or are a part of an elective rotation. You've been teaching a long time. Are you seeing that students' desire for better nutrition education happening? So as the curriculum has developed, as student numbers have increased, and as nutrition has become more in the forefront of a lot of conversations, primarily driven by recalls and problems with nutrition rather than anything else, that students have a desire for a couple of things. One is more uh, broad information related to veterinary nutrition, small animal nutrition, but also more than just the conventional types of diets and the conventional information. And do you think that that's just a generational shift? I mean, when I went to vet school, I think maybe raw food or fresh food feeding was just getting started, but it certainly wasn't a common discussion. Nowadays, I feel like pet parents are having that discussion, but it's not necessarily included with veterinarians or veterinarians because we're lacking knowledge, just say, you know, just don't do it. Do you think it's just a shift in perspective with age, like millennials thinking more about food and how food matters? I think there's been a shift, not only in millennials, but uh, in other generations as well, in terms of what the role of nutrition is in, in health and certainly managing disease, but in particular with health and longevity and, you know, overall well-being. And if you look at surveys through some of the pet food trade magazines, pet owners in particular are more interested in simple ingredients, ingredients that they recognize, less complex formulations similar to what they are eating, and they are, for the most part, tending to eat better than generations before them. I didn't feel like 25 years ago that there was a focus on, you know, as long as you're feeding a diet that's considered complete and balanced. I don't feel like we really were taught to focus on nutrition until there became an illness where nutrition could potentially help with intervention. Do you feel like people are thinking more about preventive nutrition now than before? I think it's probably been in the last 15, probably more than that, 20 some years that the focus has become more on preventative therapy. But most of the research, if you look in veterinary literature in general, has been the role of nutrition in managing disease once it has occurred, whether it's cancer or kidney disease or heart disease or GI disease or whatever it might be. There is much less information out there in terms of the role of nutrition in preventing disease in dogs and cats. Do you believe that 
research potentially could help shift that. I certainly think that pet parents are asking, what foods can I feed now to extend the life and the quality yeah. of life, the health span, as, as well as the lifespan of my dog or cat? I do think that this could be causing a rift between pet owners who are asking the questions and veterinarians that are saying, I don't know, we didn't, we didn't learn about it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think the issue is who's going to fund the research, first of all, because most research has traditionally been funded by pet food companies. And so they have very specific interests in terms of their return on investment. And so a lot of that research has been more focused on disease states and managing disease states. Less has been put into looking at wellness nutrition, except perhaps in terms of some studies uh, related to you know, weight management. But even then, a lot of that research has been once they're obese, how do we get weight off of them and how do we keep it off, not necessarily how we prevent it. So it still doesn't quite answer the question in terms of what are some individual ingredients or formulations that might you know, specific foodstuffs that might help with longevity other than, you know, maintaining optimal condition and not letting a pet become overweight or obese. It is difficult sometimes for veterinarians to think of that or even to think about homemade diets or whole food diets and using diversity of foods in a healthy animal, uh, you know, in a healthy dog or cat, because that's not the way they're, they're taught. But on the other hand, I think whether it's about nutrition or about anything else, if they don't know, if they don't do it, if they're not comfortable in doing it, then they should be referring their client to someone who can do that for them. Where are we right now with veterinary student education when it comes to nutrition training? And I guess a second part of that question is, are there any changes that you can foresee that may be beneficial to help provide vet students better education pertaining to nutrition? First of all, veterinary education in general moves really slow, and universities in particular move really slow. I think it's only been in the last, again, short period of time, 10 years maybe, that people have started to look at how can we use nutrition to improve longevity. And I wish I could say that that's been uniform across all schools and all teaching programs. I'm not sure that that's true. And I think it in part comes back to who is teaching the course and from where they're coming from in terms of their belief in that and their training in that. I think we are seeing a shift away from disease-oriented medicine, including nutrition, to more wellness and health. And, and, and part of that then is when we get to dogs and cats, here are the conventional foods, but there are all these other ones out there and being willing to discuss those in an un and present those in an unbiased fashion. And that sometimes is a, an issue. Students are exposed to people from industry and they tend to be the large companies because they have the money to be able to do it, to bring in people to talk about unbiased topics while they're wearing their jacket with the logo and their slides have the logo and they give them handouts that have you know, the company's information and stuff. So they're exposed to it in those ways, whereas the smaller companies and the less traditional companies don't have the financial resources yet to be able to do that. It comes back to, again, somebody coming in and being willing to talk about it without biasing students away from those types of diets as being viable alternatives to the traditional. And that is a, a stellar 
goal that certainly is one of Canwe's goals, but incredibly difficult. It's a little bit, I've heard a number of people say to me, it's a little bit like going to medical school and have pharmacology class being taught by pharmaceutical companies. There's going to be a bias there. And yet, I think for some veterinary schools, it's either that or no nutrition training. So yeah. they're incredibly thankful for what they have, but it does give pause for recognizing that there could be relationships there, or there's a perspective there that needs to be evaluated when you're thinking about where the information's coming from, for sure. And you just got to realize when people come in and give you pizza and a pen that says one of the Lawrence <laughs> Clifford Company's name that, you know, that's fine. Take advantage of it and get your free food, but they're not doing it because they love you. They're doing that because they want you to be familiar, like feeding programs. They want you to be familiar with the diets. And so when you go out, what are you going to recommend? Of course. The diets that you're familiar with. When I show the students in some of these things like, you know, Blue Buffalo lost a lawsuit because of byproduct being in an ingredient that wasn't supposed to be byproduct. But then I show them the, the court thing that says the executive vice president of purchasing for Purina admitted in open court that they purchased the same thing and use it in a food that was said to be byproduct free. You know, <laughs> like yeah. Pierre, no better. Business yeah, is business. You just need exactly to be aware right. of that. Again, it takes somebody to sit down and talk to students or present to students, you know, that perspective. Every three weeks I go down to community practice and I present them very not traditional nutrition. And when I start showing them this information, they're usually, not all, there's usually some that fight, but most of the students come up with it saying, well, I didn't understand that. I didn't appreciate that. I didn't realize you know, what feeding trials actually mean or don't mean and how not regulated they are, how much research there really isn't. And it sort of makes them a little uncomfortable and shifts their, you know, thinking or paradigm or whatever you want to call it. Large pet food companies and traditional pet foods are not bad. I mean, dogs and cats have done well for decades on them, but they're designed to be for an average pet and to provide adequate nutrition. And the question becomes, and this is where usually veterinarians push back, is the less traditional diets may have a potential to provide better nutrition, but we don't have that data. And you can alienate your pet owners by saying, you know, feed hills, Purina, or Royal Canin, or you can listen to them and say, I don't know about that diet, but let me find out about it and let's talk about it and let me learn from this. And you bring up a, a very valid point. We've got you know, average diets for sustaining average health. We have certainly, from my perspective, we have thousands, if not millions of pet parents saying, I don't want average health for my dog right. or cat. I'm looking for superior health. And yet we don't have the research to show them Right. That homemade, fresh, organic, free-range foods are necessarily any healthier. That research hasn't been done. So people are going off of common sense. They're going off of what the grandma told them. They're going off of some some deductions that seem logical, and yet veterinarians don't have any studies to show them. The problem with that for me for the veterinarians is, again, their conclusion is it doesn't stop at we don't have data it moves to, therefore, these are not good. Yes. And even though that is based on what we do, we don't eat the same pre-made food meal after meal, day after day for, you know, the, all of our life. And I think what happens is students are taught, I know students are taught, it's, it's nutrients, not ingredients. So if you provide X amount of protein, it doesn't matter where the protein's coming from, 
it's going to be good. And, and that's true to an extent. It's going to be adequate for a healthy pet. The question becomes, what happens if you change the proteins or you use whole proteins rather than, you know, meal byproducts or whatever? Can you get something better? And we don't have the data to say it's better, but the converse of that is that doesn't mean it's worse. Yeah. And if the owners want to do that, then why and talk them out of it? You know, why not find out for yourself rather than saying feed one, feed one of these three or four brands of food? Why not say, well, then let's see how they do. When you give talks at conferences and you bring this up, that's usually how the conversation begins. And then somewhere in this, I'll say, you have all seen some dog who has eaten table scraps all of its life or has been on raw food and has never had a problem and looks better than any dog you've ever seen. And that usually quiets the whole crowd because they know they have seen those pets. Right. Which makes them start thinking about, well, maybe there is something there and maybe I need to be a little bit more open to listening to what my clients have to say and be more aware of what they're doing and learn from what they're doing. We don't have the data, but if we learn from those experiences, we develop our own database in terms of counseling clients who ask those kind of questions that you've asked. I think the other realization is there's a lot that we don't know. And how are we going to find that out is the real question. It isn't so much what do we need to know, it's how, how do we go and find out. And that's certainly where independent, unbiased pet food research comes into play. Hence our desire to raise as much money as we can to get some of those pieces into place to be able to answer some of those questions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your ongoing commitment to ask questions, engage in conversations, participate in the evolution of what pet parents are asking. We really view you as a valiant leader in this space of starting conversations and keeping them going. Oh, you're welcome. I, I you know, we're at a point where veterinary nutrition is good. Pet, pet food nutrition is good. But the real question is, can we make it better? And I think we're past the point of the big questions, how much protein, how much fat, or whatever. An hour or two, how can we tweak it so that we can improve quality of life, help prevent disease, and provide for a longer amount of good quality of life? But we're sort of at a crossroads where we need to focus now on, are there better ingredients? Are there better ways of making commercial pet food that doesn't involve heat processing, that is whole ingredient based, or non-processed foods, whether it's raw or minimally processed by different means, then we need to find out actually, can I make it better? And I couldn't agree with you more that we need to be able to provide that information for all inquiring minds, industry, pet parents, veterinarians, nutritionists, we all would like to know. So thank you for participating in our ongoing quest to get those answers for everyone that's interested. Well, thank you for inviting me. We hope you enjoyed today's interview and please consider supporting CanWe's new SPAN program to help educate the next generation of veterinary students and vet tech students about the importance of good food for pets. Donation links can be found in the article below this video.